Hello, welcome to Lit KC. I'm your host, Jason Prue. Today, my guest is Craig Workman. Craig is a teacher, a writer. He's also an artist in residence with the Charlotte Street Foundation Studio Residency Program for 2017-2018. He's also a very old friend of mine. I've known Craig for almost 20 years. So it was a good conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm eating jelly beans, which reminds me, throughout this podcast, you're going to hear some beeping noises throughout. That is my blood sugar meter warning me of dangerously low blood sugar levels. I took quick action, but you'll still hear the beeps every now and then. So Craig and I today talk about growing up in a small town, what it means to be a character in Kansas City, and how liberal arts can save the world. Maybe that's a little bit ambitious, but I feel like that's what we need. Liberal arts can teach you empathy. Um, And boy, we need a lot more empathy in the world. Here he is, folks. Craig M. Workman. So what are you guys doing for your... You're going to have a like a group kind of magazine you're going to do? Right. There are six writers. Um, That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was, I was surprised, too. Um, we put together a zine called Filter. Cool. Sort of dealing with the, with the um, notion of we as writers being a filter, as well as kind of the filters of society. So we'll see how that goes. I'm kind of excited to look. Are you at the doing a point. fiction piece or? Yeah, a really essay? short, yeah. really short fiction piece. Um, I'm working on so many things right now. I'm not used to really. I mean, you know, some of the things I write are really short. I like to write flash fiction when some once in a while, but I think most of my pieces I've written in the last several years are. Wow, I don't know, twelve to twenty-five pages, probably. Yeah. And we have four pages on that, so I had to be pretty, pretty economic, economical as far as what I did. So I just put in a short piece about uh, about uh, a kid disappearing, and uh, the storyteller basically not being. You you can't really tell who's being reliable and who isn't. Trying to decide what this person is imagining about his about his uh, daughter disappearing. So it's a, sort of the you could say the filter of sanity, yeah, or lack thereof. Um, I was thinking about. Are you so you guys are gonna are you just doing a regular like eight and a half eleven print? Or are you? I think it's going to be six by. I'd have to look at my notes. I know today for my formatting, I know we need to format our um, borders at five and a half inches. So I think it was going to be six by something. They wanted it to be kind of an off-size. And, and then black and whites, that's about the only other thing I know right now. Are you getting a lot done in the studio, man? Um, I mean, it's it's never enough. I, I always feel like I could have more done. But I'm, um, I'm the better part of the way through almost half of my collection as far as what my goal is. I'm going for at least 12 pieces as far as a, as a, as a cogent collection. Yeah. And I'm about through five. Did you go in with anything written? Nope. That's pretty nice. Well, I had, I mean, the way the way I do things anyway, I kind of, which I'm sure most of us do, many of us do, 
I have notebooks and notebooks and journals and journals with lots of, I don't know, premises, observations, things that I think yep. about when I... Tinkerings, yeah. Tinkerings when I, when I people watch or when I'm driving down the road and something just occurs to me, but nothing, nothing fully realized. So has being at Charlotte Street opened you up to what other folks are doing in Kansas City with regards to not only writing, but how... Have you been able to collaborate with any of the visual artists or any of the? We've had we've had lots of conversations in our in our um, our monthly uh, meetings. We've been working through things like I've been offering to read, uh, read and edit and give feedback on some of their artist, artist statements, statements yeah. and they've offered in, in kind to um, if if I need any any visual art of any kind that you know sort of sort of the. Uh, artist barter system yeah <laughs> and we have i mean there are lots of there's lots of potential for for things to come I'm, I'm thinking about applying for a second year um one of the things i monday night's pretty tricky for me but they meet with a lot of the writers and a lot of the visual artists and they just sort of have a confab monday nights and bounce each other's work off one another and have conversations about where they're hoping to go and uh, some of the notes and some of the feedback I've heard from that is something I really want to start um, attending. That's one of the, I wouldn't say problems, but one of the things I wish were a bit different, just that we all have such different schedules. Yeah. I'm there, since I'm only teaching online this semester, I'm there during the day. Oh, really? Quite a bit. Not always. Yeah. But uh, it's almost always just myself on the whole floor. Sometimes I'll hear one or two other people on the other end, the opposite of the writer's yeah. row, tinkering over there. But a, a lot of the hours, it's just me. So there's only so much I can do about that with the kids' school schedules and whatnot. My time there was pretty much the same, although it was kind of reverse. I was there after work from, you know, five to midnight, once or twice a week. And my neighbor would come in and write a little bit. Uh, a couple times a week, uh -huh. but anybody that else that was there, I would be coming in as most folks were leaving, and then there might be some folks way down at the hall, uh -huh. you know, in the bigger studios doing work, but it was pretty empty. I think I'm going to start doing, I'll probably be doing at least, you know, Tuesday through Thursday days at least, but I think I'm probably going to start doing, I'm hoping Saturday nights pretty late. Um when I can, so I feel like even though, it, even though it's uh, trickier than ever, and probably is never going to get easier again, I don't, I don't have this set, I guess, uh, creative schedule I used to, when I still work nights yeah. and before I had children, <laughs> I would write to the wee hours of the morning, all the time and just sit up and accomplish large chunks. Of, of fiction, even if it obviously needed to be chopped heavily later. It's just the fact that I would get such um, a chunk, not that I ever consider myself a prolif prolific writer, I, I feel like I would get bigger pieces at a time done than I, versus sort of a little more piecemeal now. But that, but I, you know, I do what I have to do. The demands <laughs> on your time never seem to really go away. I think there's that, you know, the kids come, but also, you know, you've got work. I mean, you're only teaching this online class this semester, but you're still working on your PhD, right? Right. Um, I'm hoping to graduate in December. 
I was really hoping it would be May, but I, I just, I simply haven't. Does that mean actually graduate, defend your dissertation, like the whole nine yards, PhD at the end of Craig mm -hmm. M. Workman? Sweet. I'm hoping to defend it in, say, September, maybe the beginning of October at the latest, which I could do it later than that if I, if yeah, I wanted yeah. to walk in December, but... It would mean it would mean having to grind out a lot between now and say and say the end of summer. So time will tell. I'm really hoping to uh, start start back on the uh, I suppose the academic prose momentum I had a few years ago. <laughs> it seems it seems that uh, I mean I've I've written so many scholarly essays and things throughout my life, uh, and but I. I feel like, um, who knows if it's getting older, getting more stressed out or what, I feel as if writing scholarly pieces, they take me longer than they used to. And of course, this is my first dissertation, so. Yeah, you want to get it right. A ponderous tome, <laughs> they say, but they also, getting it right versus they say the best dissertation is a complete dissertation. Yeah. That you say, here you go, goodbye. I'm done, man. That's right. I got and drop the mic. That's right. So you have lived in KC or its surrounds. I mean, really, most of your life. Most of my life, absolutely. Mm -hmm. you, know, you grew up in Osawatomie, right? Osawatomie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Small town. Was about 5,000 people, but I think it's smaller than Is that it about now. about 45 minutes, hour south of here? Um, from here, just about an hour. Hour? Right. Um, born in Chicago, but then came up here when I was very young. So pretty much, I, I consider myself You consider yourself Casey all the way, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that's one thing that, I guess, the risk of sounding after school special about it and cheesy it just makes me not just with the charlotte street residency but i think that's helped a lot as you, you were mentioning earlier just really getting a sense of a sense of community for artists and i mean it, i think i think if you whether you do anything in the arts and i i, I sort of cringe at calling myself an artist but uh even if you're not a writer, a painter, or what have you, I would say in the last 10, 12, 15 years, you're really hearing about it more than you ever have, as far as Kansas City goes. But still being, sort of soaking in it, and being down in it, you really start to get the sound, oh my gosh, this is... There's a lot of people a lot of work. people, yeah. yeah, absolutely, that, and that are, that are willing to, or that, not more than willing, are excited to read your stuff, to ask you what you're working on, to say, oh, there's, there, there's these readings coming up this day, this day, this day. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've met, you know, colleagues who, who work at galleries, who gallery sit, who do this, who do that. And I guess it's, um, it's a matter of being down in it where it really starts to, uh, kind of, again, cheesy as it might sound, uh, makes you really sort of proud to be a, be in the, be in the city and be I a part of it. I think being proud, but no, you're not alone. That's a, like, there's a different thing about right. yeah, writing a, and being a writer. And I would say any, you're just making things, but if you're doing it kind of isolated, um, that residency program in particular just gives you that sense of, man, there's a lot, like I said, a lot of people doing work in this city. Um, and it just changes your perspective. Like, you know, I'm let's stop, I feel a lot more tuned in to. That's a great way to put it. That's, and I have, I have the sense that's a bell that won't be unrung. Mm -mm. No, I don't think so. I think once you're paying attention to that stuff and, you know, who knows for whatever reason, I wasn't really paying attention to it before, probably just because I didn't see where to fit in to that current. 
Oh, sure. And I mean, you can make, you can make all the hay you want about it being a difference between, I mean, technically I'm considered a, a professional academic in scare quotes, but there's a big difference between being able to be out there versus saying, look, there's this reading in this, this building at UMKC or at JCCC, and you largely deal with people who are trying to do the specific exact same thing that you are. But it, and it's and it's it's easy to forget that that you're also that you're that you're surrounded by all these other people who are making stuff too. Yeah. And it's, I, I feel pretty lucky to be a part of it. It's 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 exciting. So talk to me about growing up in Oswatomie, man. Pretty small town, right? Oh boy, yeah, small town. Um, not to sound like a pessimist, but not a whole lot to do. So you were, I mean, you came to there from Chicago, but you were pretty young. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. you came there as someone who was wise about the world or, you know, you were a kid. I was a kid. Absolutely. So, um, so I assume you grew up hunting and fishing. Oh yeah, sure. Hunting, fishing, doing, you know, throughout scouts, uh, survival training, rescue swimming, spent a lot of time at summer camps. We, once I could drive, we cruised around a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I used to spend a lot of time down at the river fishing, writing, just kind of. So you've been writing since you were a kiddo? Sure. Yeah. The, um, the first thing I published, it was really terrible. I think I was nine. It was a, it was a really awful little poem in creative kids magazine. You still have it? <laughs> I do. Nice. It's in a box somewhere in the basement. <laughs> and it's printed on the... It was um, an imprint of Scholastic Press, I think. Yeah. But it was the ugliest um, like magenta or pink paper, just, just garish. But hey, you know, look. My, my folks were pretty proud. Well, yeah. Nine years <laughs> old. That's cool, man. I think it was nine. Something like that. So did you always... I know since I have known you, which has been a long time. Long time. You know, going on 20 years, really. You've wanted to be a writer. Or you've really just called yourself a writer. I'm just getting by doing other things, you know, working, finishing up school, whatever it is. Well, um, other than say, um, I think when I was, I don't know, littler than that, I think I wanted to be an astronaut and paleontologist at the same time. But other than that, I mean, this is, this is all I can remember ever really seriously wanting to do is write, teach writing. You when know? you, uh, when you got out of high school, did you go to college right away? Mm-hmm. Were you in an English major at that point? I was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, the only thing that's ever changed for me is I started out, I couldn't even, t- I have to look at my transcripts, I couldn't even tell you how many semesters, but it was brief that I started out um, majoring in secondary English, so as, as to teach high school versus yeah. college. And actually, one more reason, my mom's awesome, she actually talked me out of it. Oh, no kidding. After a while, because, you know, as you know, she was an English teacher for decades. Yeah. And she knew me well enough to <laughs> to know that I would have a really big issue with all the, the, the red tape of curriculum versus, you know, te- teaching at teaching higher education, any place you teach that's worth teaching in or at, you have the principle of academic freedom, which, you know, assumes you're an authority, so you can utilize... Absolutely, anything you want, any any book you want, anything multimodal, uh, anything whatsoever, yeah. to to get your point to across, get the point across and to facilitate right. you know facilitate growth and conversation and critical thinking. So, she was right. <laughs> 
one more reason your parents know what they're talking about. Yeah, it's hard Absolutely. to admit that. It only takes, you know, sometimes 30 or 40 years. Even though it's more of a stretch than ever before and tougher than ever before to uh, to make it in the like professoriate. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a blood match out there. I mean, it used to be 80% full-time, 20% contingent or adjunct faculty. And that's, that's inverted now. And and what's the what's the driving force behind that? Outside, of, we're, we're saving costs, but why do we need to save? That's it, save costs. But why is tuition going up? Oh gosh, that's a that's a really long story. I'm not sure I could answer all the way. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the biggest things that um, <laughs> my colleagues and I often uh, sometimes get in heated shouting matches uh, about at meetings are uh, we take issue with administrative bloat when there'll be a president of a university, for example, that will be making high six figures, low seven figures, probably low seven figures. Yeah. Um, and there are, I don't know if you remember hearing the story, oh goodness, six or seven years ago about the adjunct who is uh, I'm, I'm an older, older lady, maybe in her late 50s, early 60s, and oh my gosh, it's escaping me. Madison, University of Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison, someplace like that, who uh, um, froze to death in her car. She was living in her car, was, you know, adjuncting three, maybe even four different places. God damn. That's, that's the kind of uh, disparity that kind of makes you a little, uh, little prickly. But yet you struggle through. Struggle through. <laughs> you're, you're still on it. And that's the thing. I mean, there can always be more money, and I, I feel like we could definitely... I could definitely be doing better for my family. Always, of course, anyone could say that. But I, but I would also say, I know I have a lot of colleagues who are doing a heck of a lot worse than I am. Yeah. So I, no matter what, I can't complain. I just have to. I mean, you apply for every full time tenure track and non tenure track gig you can, and so just if one keep came up outside of the city. Mm -hmm. Would you pack up and roll? I don't know. Uh, it would depend how far out of the city. I applied for one at, um, for example, a few, two, three weeks ago at Northwest Missouri State. And I would make that commute. It's, oh, you, know, you would commute up there? Yeah. Sure. It's about, wouldn't be ideal, but any sort of full teaching English professorship, and it's non-tenure track even, but uh, the course load is manageable, and it would make a 90-minute commute worth it. Yeah. I mean, versus... I mean, with my my level of seniority, at, certainly at JCC and and also largely at UMKC, um, I have a lot more of a a normalized sense of what I can expect to teach, how much for contract work I can expect to teach in the spring, in the summer, and in the fall. So, and again, not to complain, certainly a lot more than than others because I've I've, I've been at I've been teaching at UMKC nine years now say almost 10 years man and i just wild. made associate at G jccc this semester that's Congrats. my third year so that helps but i mean i would if if i could have a full yeah, you know sure. full time with benefits those are um but i mean i'm saying if uh if an opportunity came up north carolina you know, south carolina idaho you know i don't know that would certainly have to be up to my family as well um i couldn't be one of those people to just say I've been waiting for this forever. Let's go get in the car. Uh, um, be tempting. I'd have to have a lot of conversations. Cause uh, my my wife just went to 
the the salary position in the nonprofit sector she's very very happy with and whew, that'd be rough of course I know what I what I'd like to do especially knowing what tenure track starts at nowadays versus what adjunct ma adjuncts make nowadays that that makes it pretty attractive as well but uh, hey at the end of the day I still have to remind myself even when I get really stressed out about about money and all that stuff I I'm I'm, I'm teaching writing and we're not we're not exactly in the poorhouse yet, so that's. I, I was hoping we'd not starve to death and still be able to do what I like to do, but it's working out, man. It so can always be you, worse. You went to where'd you go to college? Uh, undergrad at KU. All the way through. Um, like that's where you started. I started, and then I took some time off to work and save a lot of money uh, bartending. Then went to JCCC in '99 and. Finished my AA there in 2000 and then transferred back to KU and finished my bachelor's in 03 and my MFA UMKC 2010 and now um, interdisciplinary PhD. Hopefully 2018. <laughs> we'll see about that one. Knock on wood. Knock on everything. Talk to me about how you got into bartending. Oh goodness! Well, you like Tom Cruise cocktail <laughs> shit? You went oh, to sure, a it was fun. championship bartending circuit. How'd you get into that? Oh uh, well, I um, before I ever worked at a restaurant in my life, other than I was a cook at Perkins my freshman year at college, I guess if you want to count that. Uh, I was a machine operator and a machine adjuster for National Envelope, and I worked the graveyard shift, eleven to seven a.m., and it was awful. I mean, it was great because I, I like to tinker on things, and I, I, it was great as far as the pay and the age I was. But I felt like not just the schedule, but it was so loud there all the time. You had to wear earplugs the whole time. Fifteen minutes for lunch, even in the break room, you couldn't hear anyone. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. I guess if you want to call it lunch at about three in the morning. Um, and I felt like I never really got to talk to anyone. Uh, I enjoy my own time, but that was a little too much after a while. I had my 21st birthday when I was working there, and so some of my the few people who were working next to me who knew me, they um, found one bar that opened at 6 a.m. on my birthday. So they went and bought me a beer, and then I had to go home and go to sleep. And it was, uh, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the end. So there was a restaurant I used to go to, TGI Fridays, that I like to eat there once in a while. So I kind of said, I, I'm done with this. So I applied as a server and really liked that because it was the polar opposite as far as being a person who likes to watch people, talk to people, yeah. observe things and write about, you know, and fictionalize them, whatever. It was great. All I got to do all day was make, make other people happy, give them drinks and serve them food and chat. And especially at a place like TGI Fridays, you can be, if you're really... Um, I don't know, an outgoing idiot. <laughs> um, it's the it's the place for you. So, I, I really liked it. It was it was nice, and I think uh, I think after I started working there, I realized how bad for me the pre a, a place like the previous place was yeah. to work. It was just uh, wasn't good for me. I guess psychologically or psychically wasn't wasn't good. And then I was promoted to bar. Oh, I can't remember. A little less than a year after I started there, and 
So how does that work? It's a promotion to bar. They just they trust that you're going to be able to handle that. They like your attitude. What is it? What makes it's, a good bar? It's up to the general manager. Yeah. Basically, they look at you and say, "We want you to start training for bar," or, and you can't. You can bother them a little bit, but if you do it too much, it kind of makes them mad. You can you can remind them about it. You definitely. I mean, you have to be you have to be outgoing. If you're one of those people who shows up in a in a pissy mood, you're not going to last long yeah. at at any bar, let alone a place like that. You have to be pretty organized. Be ready to move really quickly without ever bumping into anyone, no matter how busy you are. You have to remember, I don't know, 15 or 20 things at the same time for, you know, 10, 12 hours at a stretch. What about, uh, what did working in a bar teach you about people? Hmm. That as much, as much, among other things, I could go on for <laughs> days about that. One of the things I notice is just when you think you've seen it all, you're wrong. Yeah. Or you've heard it all. Is that people you're, or is that alcohol? <laughs> uh, yes. A combo. Yeah. Yes, a combo. I mean, I, I've, gosh, I've tried to, people tried to come over the bar on me and kill me, throw pint glasses at my head. I once hopped the bar because I heard something that I didn't know if somebody was joking or not. I ran into the girl's bathroom and there was a girl who'd worked next door. Her boyfriend had just broken up with her, and so she took too many of her meds, and she was trying to saw her hand off with a steak knife. Had gone way in. And so I uh, I held her down and applied direct pressure until the ambulance came and took her away. She lived, came and thanked me a couple months later. Holy shit. Uh, What's she oh doing gosh. now? Do you, ever, do you remember her name? No, I don't. It was... Um, that was probably a couple years before I quit Friday, so maybe 2006 or seven, something like that. And those are that's some of the uh, the tamer. <laughs> I've seen a little bit of everything, but I mean that's again, you know, hoping. I like to think I'm a creative person, but I, you 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 get so many ideas, and granted, it can be. <clears throat> some people can argue it's cliche to have every story take place in a bar and I certainly don't do that but I just mean as far as characterization of some of some of the people who inhabit your stories little little bits of conversation just ideas things that people worry about stress about cry about yeah. that maybe you never would have thought of um I don't know I think I think that helped among other things make me a make me a stronger writer thinking about Noticing things. Is maybe. there a a type of character that you say you would say is is endemic to Kansas City? Like this is a this is someone from KC. Could hmm. you create a person like that in one of your stories? Sure, I th I think I have before. I mean, I, I definitely and, and I, I've I engage in arguments like this all the time. People who say, well, you know, we're in the post regional right. America. We're in the post. You know the globalism. There is no, there is no sense of place in, I don't know, in, um, in food and art and what. And I, I, I think. The truth couldn't be further from that. I absolutely, and probably always will believe in regional literature. That there's a certain voice. There's a certain sensibility. Um, now you could chalk some of that up to, to cliche or essentializing or. But I would say that, for example, many people, even if we're just talking about the Midwest in general, I would notice 
that a lot of my characters, and, and, and probably a reflection of where I've grown up, I suppose, yeah. would seem to have generally more a bit more of a laid-back demeanor compared to people I know who were born and raised uh, on the East Coast. Or versus, and, and it'd be even more different. I have a lot of family that lives in the South. I would notice... Um, uh, a different way of carrying carrying oneself that I think you could that I think come across in my characters, and not to be so vague, but that are are genuinely Midwestern, maybe a little more thoughtful. Now, anyone listening on the East Coast, that's not to say they're not thoughtful, but a, a sort of a different um, a different mode of being a bit, as far as interacting with one another, uh, at least on the page, and I would say that's because of, uh, largely that's that's what I've seen. Um, as far as um, attention to care for one another, um, looking out for one another. And I'm sure that sounds a little touchy-feely as well, but that's what I think comes across in some of my characters. Um, and for that matter, I would say that pretty much everything I've written, certainly in the last 20 years or so, is... Um, as far as the setting is Midwestern. Yeah. I would say that being, you know, you're, you're notwithstanding any of your stranger fiction aside, your pretty straightforward stuff is, I mean, you get a very Midwestern vibe from it. Well, I have some strange stuff coming up in this collection. I can't I, wait I to read it. Yeah. Me, me too. I'm anxious to, I mean, I, I can't wait for you to read it, but I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Hoping it makes sense. What, uh, <laughs> what does the future hold for you, man? You're getting this PhD, you're hoping oh for a full professorship? That would be just fine, and that would be plenty for me to be awesome. To, yeah. to be, I, I, I really, I want to keep writing, I want to keep teaching writing. I mean, not to say that's it, but that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, again, that's all I've ever wanted to do, and I'd be completely happy with that. And as long as uh, we can get to the point where my family's comfortable and everybody's happy with what everybody's doing, that's uh, that would make me more than content. Um, I mean, you get to you get to write you get to write all day. You get to talk about writing all day. It's a hard you get to life. Talk about Mr. stories. Workman. It's a it, real hard it's, life. It's a, it can be a tr there's a you know it's a lot of work, but it's the to me. I mean, I've, I spent years doing construction. I spent years working, I, years working in factories, doing, and, I can, and I can do all that stuff too, and I can go right back to doing it if I, if I really need to. It's no problem. But this kind of hard work is the work I prefer. I can still go and do all that other stuff. So, but. Yeah, let's talk about the difference between the hard work you're doing as a professor, well, an adjunct professor. I mean, you, you, you're living with this instability of, you know, it's like it's an at-will kind of thing. Like, hey, we don't need you anymore, Craig. Versus the hard work and the instability that you have as a contract worker doing construction for, you know, a firm. Or a factory worker who, maybe it's stable, but it's monotonous. I mean, Unless you're last in, first out. Hard work, I mean, though. Yeah, it's really sure. difficult work to just say, hey, you're going to do this one thing over and over for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I... I've seen this. I've, if I, if you're going where I think you're going, this, this is what I'm taking from what you're asking. I have had uh, this conversation a lot of times, and you hear the terms overeducated, liberal, this or that, who lives in an ivory tower, 
who doesn't know how to do a hard day's work. And sure, I mean, you could make that kind of blanket statement about anyone doing anything that doesn't involve, you know, getting calluses and doing this or that. Um, I've done it all on both ends of the spectrum. And I think, uh, again, if you, this isn't where you're going, correct me, but I think a lot of people today, especially in light of recent, fairly recent political events, think that, um, for example, uh, uh, Greitens, among others, um, in Missouri is trying to remove tenure completely, completely, which would set a precedent that would be really Is that scary. guy going to be able to do anything anymore? I mean, he's kind of like <sighs> a... I hope not. Now, and that's not to say someone else wouldn't take up that mail. You know, he's setting, certainly uh, possible. He may not pass it, but he's putting the idea in other people's heads that this is something we need to do. Absolutely. And it's, you know, among other things, it's a war on academia. And even if, okay, you're not a professional academic and you teach higher education or teach high school for a living, it seems to be that while it's certainly different from when we were kids, if you were a nerd, oh man, nobody wanted to talk to you. And now it seems like it's a little cooler to be a nerd than it used to be, I like a like fanboy, but there's also... That's the difference, though. It's like, it's, it's pop culture nerdism mm -hmm. that's okay. I feel like if you're like a physics genius at 10, you're probably still getting that sense ostracized of like, and... you know, it's like, hey, it's okay to like Star Wars now, or it's okay to play D&D. &D. And it's okay for girls to like Star Wars, yeah. which is, you know. That was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Shouldn't have had to be, but you're right. It was a pretty big deal. I think, I think in general, the consensus especially in the past few years, that if you're educated and trying to, trying to engage in, in, in civil discourse about this president or that president or, you know, what it means to live in a federal republic or we talk about uh, the, the amendments of the Constitution, that if you try to point out some of the same things, for example, you teach in an American Studies course or in one of my discourse sections, on um, on civil on, on social justice, then uh, then you're an, an uneducated um, liberal who's never worked a day in their life, things of that nature. Does that do you see where I'm going? Well, what I'm asking more is, you work both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the difference, if any, between putting in a hard day's manual labor and putting in a hard day's cognitive labor? I don't I don't see. I, I mean. Other than literally, I don't see any difference. It's all work. And the people who just, who, who will sort of blow off um, what people like myself do, say, well, you, you know, you get to sit, at, sit in a chair all day. And what do you think I'm about just, that? What do you just, think about, what, what's the, the impetus behind short shrifting thinking? I think it's dangerous. I think, um, I think we've seen that uh, before in decades and centuries before us. Um, not to be a doomsayer and go so far to say it's the beginning of the end, but but I know that's where your mind goes. <laughs> well, pretty often, yeah. I, I mean, you think about um, what the function of, and again, I know it's a loaded term. Think about consider the function of an intellectual. The function of an intellectual, among other things, is to teach our children, is to teach our leaders who are someday going to you know, be, be president, run for Congress, travel in space, um, invent things that are going to save millions of lives, whatever the case may be. 
And I think a lot of people, even whether they haven't had a formal education, some who have, um, think that when I mention things like that, they mean that we're going to teach you this and that and the stuff we want you to know. And that's why, you know, brainwashing, yeah. essentially. And that, that couldn't be further from what the focus of a high school teacher, a college teacher is supposed to do. It's only... I say only because I think it's one of the most difficult things there is, is to think critically for oneself. That's the job of an intellectual, period. And if more people took a moment to think about that, what that is, you know, I'm not, I'm, nobody's trying to, I'm not trying to stand on top of a pillar of, of, of skulls and talk about how, you know, intelligent I am. Everyone has to bow down and listen to me. I love to teach people. And it's not just about, look, now you can write a short story. It's about this artifact, this American novel that was written during the third world, third world student strikes. This tells us about who we are now, even though it was written 50 years ago. Let's talk about what that means. It's so much more of a job than just talking about books. It's about understanding Do you find your students <laughs> willing to be engaged on that level? Most. Many, yeah. many or most. I mean, you get some hesitancy, some reticence some reticent behavior, and I think a lot of that is, not always, but I think a lot of it is some, some students come from a very conservative home and are maybe not used to being able to voice their opinion versus maybe being stepped on by their parents' opinions. Um, or they didn't go to a school that had very comprehensive, you know, English, social studies, philosophy, sociology, any of the arts and sciences that um, yeah, someone pretty even, valuable to be able to think for yourself or even to even start to, because I guarantee no one's fully formulated formulated those for themselves, been able to articulate kind of what by what philosophy they base their existence. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be a rare high school student that came. A few, not many. Into one of your <laughs> classes that was had all of that. That I mean, that's pretty. That'd be pretty commendable, but you know, I just I find the whole the lack and the trending lack of interest in big ideas from the general populace as a whole pretty disconcerting. You know, I mean, I'm in a bubble because I'm concerned about these things. You're concerned about these things, so I'm already paying attention and engaged on that level. But I know that. Most of the world is just, I want to say most of the world, most of the country, is just seems not to be at all. And I, I don't know where that starts and how we can correct that. Well, Outside of at the home, you know, teach your kids. It, it sounds like a non-solution solution, but I mean, we need to have, we need to be able to have, I think on, and I can't even say both sides of the aisle. Gosh, I, I really hate that term, but... Um, we need to talk about it, and that might sound, well, duh, thank you for that. That was brilliant. But, I mean, talk about it free of cliches and encapsulated arguments that you saw on a meme on Facebook to honestly think about what's being said. There's a reason it's called discourse. Mm -hmm. Two-way versus this. I think what we're talking about nowadays, what, I think what, what, you're, what you're looking at seeing as, as problematic is you know, it's social agonism. Yeah. I'm waiting till you take a breath. 
Well, you're screaming at me. I'm waiting for you to take a breath so I can start screaming Scream at back. you. You're waiting for me to take a breath. And it, it has nothing of substance. It's all, again, it's all these memes, these aphorisms, these, um, these talking points from one news network So how do we facilitate discourse? It's tricky. The biggest thing is, first of all, to be able to sit down figur figuratively or literally and shut the fuck up. Yeah, listen. That's that's the tricky. <laughs> I mean, and I get it. I certainly have skin in the game when it comes to discussing things in the political sphere, along the political spectrum, uh, any way you want to slice it. I have an axe to grind. Everyone does. That's why people who say they're not political, for example, are either liars or they have no understanding of what polit of, of the term political or the uh, of the polity means. We all are political. Yeah. We all have interests. And to be able to realize that, I don't know, as a starting point, maybe not, but to be able to, all right, now you're going to listen to what I'm going to say and take it in. Jeez, take notes if you want to. It doesn't matter. But to listen to what I'm saying, don't rely on any cliché or what your what your grandfather told you about, uh, I don't know, brown people when you were a kid, or I mean, whatever the case is, and honestly think about what's being offered, then not only seek to negate everything somebody said, even if you're positive you know what this person's political platform is, think about what you can affirm as far as what they said. And the more you try to take it from that point of view, I think it's really a matter of, these commonalities between us all without breaking into me saying we are the world. Um, they appear more and more and more the more you're able to really have a conversation. And I defy you to find the same 10 people in a large gathering who really know today how to have a conversation, to engage in civil discourse. That's the biggest problem as I see it, is, is it's, not, it's not discourse. It's it's um, it's a screaming match, or it's a it's a it's a Facebook shouting match. I don't know whatever you want to call it, but yeah. I, I think people haven't been taught that, and that's another job of a liberal arts education, which is why I think it's so important um, to show you how to listen as well as to think for yourself. And uh, you know, like Whitman says, I'll be that I'll filter all things through myself, and then what you know, paraphrase badly. What comes out on the other end is. Is, is newness, is possibility, is you know, things like that. And that, 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 I, that, that ability to think for oneself and engage in discourse is really the most important filter you can have. Without that, I, I, I have to imagine you're going to have a pretty embittered I think you're going to have a hard time life. being an adult. Absolutely. I think you're going to have a hard time being an adult. And I, I mean, I don't want to be that. an adult, but I want to be an adult. <laughs> in that sense absolutely yeah. you know you don't want to lose your sense of play but and i know part of being a kid and being having that sense of childness is that you know, kids yell at each other without any filters without any understanding that hey i'm i've been affronted here um very rarely do they want to listen when right. another child says well here's why i'm here's why i'm right or here's why i'm wrong or here's my point of view on it and i think it it is. That's part of growing up. You have to ask yourself what's at stake. Yeah. And the short answer is everything when you're an adult. If, if you can't 
if we can't communicate, we're we're in we're in a world of hurt. Yeah, and not only <laughs> that, but so are our kids. Absolutely, and that scares me as much or more than you know a lot of people not liking me for my political views or that I'm trying to get people to think. Whether that's in a classroom or in you know a social media setting, I make people angry all the time. That's fine. I want my kids to be able to think for themselves. It scares me that they won't be, and their their friends, their generation, won't be able to, for whatever reason or reasons. But I think, I think, I think the idea of discourse is one of the biggest things we're missing nowadays. But that probably makes me sound like an old fogey. You are an old fogey. Talking about back in my day, and you know. Old man workman. That's true. Craig, well, where can people find you online? Oh, goodness. Well. Facebook, Craig M. Workman? Is that Facebook, right? Craig M. Workman. It's searchable. I'm still working on getting a website up, and I need to do all the Instagram and all that stuff. Do you do any of that shit? I'm signed up for it, but I couldn't even tell you what my username is. It's all good. Thank you for your time today, my friend. Thank you. It's always good Excellent. chatting with you. Likewise. Anytime. All right. That was Craig Workman. I want to thank Craig for stopping by to talk. I would point you to his online presences, but he's got the Facebook and that's about it. So check him out on Facebook, Craig Workman. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Is You Is or Is You Ain't for the music. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm at litkcpod at gmail.com. Eat your jelly beans. Check your blood sugar. Don't let it get too high or too low. All things in moderation, especially your blood sugars. <laughs>